And because God is good and God is love, then it is good to love. And so when an atheist loves his wife or his family or his kids, the atheist is doing something good. The question is rather, if there is no God and you lose the ultimate standard by which we can judge actions as right or wrong, then how can we say it is actually right, good, not just strategically good, but morally good to love and morally bad to hate? All right. Well, what is up, everybody? Welcome back. This is part four of my book response to this book. I never have this ready to queue up. I'm sorry. Armina Vabi wrote the book. There it is. Why There Is No God. 20 or simple responses to 20 common arguments for the existence of existence of God. So we spent the last three videos working through his other arguments on the design argument on uh, the, 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 let's see, what else? There's design argument. There's uh, miracles and... The other one. <laughs> um, oh, God's existence is proven by scripture. Anyways, so this week we are going to be tackling the very difficult question on the topic of morality. And it's something that we've talked a lot about on the show, but I want to try to kind of stay specific to the claims that Armin makes in his book and kind of thinking through these claims. And, uh, and so if you have the book, Why There Is No God, chapter four is titled Morality Stems From God. And without God, we could not be good people. And so we're going to be looking at this question of does morality come from God? What does scripture have to say about morality? Can atheists be good people and try to make the most sense of that? Slam, hi, how you doing? Good to see you here. Uh, as always, if you're listening, uh, post your questions in the live chat and I'll do my best to get to those. If you want to join the conversation and you want to call in and, and have a conversation with me, you can do that. The link is on YouTube. Uh, so unfortunately for those watching on uh, Instagram, uh, you got to head over to YouTube and uh, you can then join me in the conversation if you want. If you're listening after the fact, join me next week. Try to do this every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Um, and Without jumping in, or before I jump in, my name is Ryan Pauly, and this is the show Think Well, show geared to train you to think well about the Christian faith and engage the culture well. And so obviously here, trying to uh, read the book by Armin Navabi, the, the president, the founder of Atheist Republic, uh, trying to understand some perspectives that he has offered on different arguments for God, think through those and see how we need to maybe change or adapt or uh, be better at how we present arguments for the existence of God. And obviously today looking at the moral argument. Uh, and so kind of jumping in here, uh, and then again, I'll get to questions that you have uh, after these, uh, the comments that I have. The title of this chapter really kind of initially kind of got me. I remember it says morality stems from God and without God, we could not be good people. And I'm thinking, that's a terrible argument. <laughs> we don't make that argument as Christian apologists. We don't say that without God, you can't be good people. We say that without God, there is no standard. There is no foundation for which to understand what goodness is, right? And wrong is. And then as I was processing this, I started thinking through conversations I've had with Christians where they have said, I don't think atheists can be good people. And I remember asking one Christian uh, back and I pushed back against this and I said, okay, so let's say an atheist, let's say like Hitler, I don't know. Let's just like think of the worst person you can ever imagine, right? Hitler's often that person. What do you call it when he hugs his wife 
when he hangs out with his children. I don't even know if he had children. When he puts them to bed, when he gives them a hello, uh, when he gives them a hello, sorry, Phantom X, I saw your hello. When he gives his kids a hug, I don't know, like when he gives his wife a hug and says, I love you, is that not a good thing? Right? Can someone who doesn't believe in God, can't they do something like that that is good to do? Can they not put in a hard day's work? Can they not tell the truth? Can they not do these things? Of course they can. So if you're going to claim that these people cannot be good people, if someone doesn't believe in God, they can't be a good person, then what do you mean by they can't be a good person? Then what do you call an action in which they do this? So as I thought through this chapter, I was reminded of that story and I thought, you know, there probably are more Christians than I think or then I realized that are going around saying that without belief in God, if you're an atheist, you cannot be a good person. And Armin addresses this in the very beginning of his chapter. And, and interestingly enough, I, part of my classes, I just finished a book called The Great Deturching of people walking away from the church and no longer going to church anymore. And one of the stats that they mentioned in that book was that Christians have this very negative view of an atheist. They'd rather be like, neighbors next to someone else who's like really bad than uh, neighbors next to an atheist. And and there's this like negative perception of atheists. And our man talks about this at the beginning of his book, where it says here, um, where do I want to start? It says uh, a person who, let's see, mm, uh, atheists are frequently viewed with suspicion. After all, with no God to tell you how to behave, what's to stop a person from doing whatever she wants? One poll conducted by a Canadian psychologist even placed atheists as more untrustworthy than rapists in the United States and Canada, showing that atheists are among the least trusted people, even in North America. And so this is stuff I've read other places. And so I just want to start here and say, look, if you're watching this and you're an atheist, I'm glad you're here. And in one sense, I'm sorry that this is this perception of you that maybe comes from a misunderstanding of this argument. Um, I don't think that you're this horrible person. I don't think that you can't be trusted. In fact, I'm good friends with atheists. Uh, I've had some on the show that are wonderful people and I do trust them. Um, and so... It's unfortunate. Let me just say this. It's unfortunate how he starts uh, that this is a true reality uh, where there, there, uh, there's a perception, there's a belief that atheists cannot be trusted, that they're not good people, and that we'd rather be friends with like people who've actually done some pretty horrible wrong things. And so that is unfortunate. Now, in this section, then he goes on and he's going to address a few different things. So the first one is that morals change and fall out of fashion. The second one, he's going to address the euthyphro dilemma. Uh, the third one is that God is either impotent, evil or non-existent. And then the last one is a natural explanation for morality. Now, I did recently do um, a show with um, uh, uh, I'm so sorry, the faithiest atheist. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Uh, kind of discussing and, and presenting a natural explanation for morality. You can go back and check that show out. Uh, but I want to kind of just, again, like I mentioned it before, uh, address the points here uh, that he is pointing out in his chapter. So he jumps into morals change and fall out of fashion. And he says this, religious texts are generally ancient and they reflect the values of the times when they're written. Over time, our views of what's acceptable shift as our cultures progress, which makes many things found in the Bible or Quran seem outdated and highly problematic. Now, I want to draw a few principles out in this video. Again, there's like specifics that we talked about a lot of different places that I've addressed, but I want to try to help you see some overarching principles. And the first one is this, recognize when you're in conversations 
with people who disagree, maybe on this topic, recognize how language is used and how language changes. Why do I say that? He says, over time, our views of what is acceptable shifts as our culture progresses. I think this word, our culture's progressing, has a moral nature to it or implies that we're getting better. Better is a moral term. And the question is simply this. If we are progressing or we are getting better, then that implies some sort of standard in which we can apply to say we're better and not worse. I I use this example all the time with students where it's like, um, you know, if I have one team that scores 80 points and another team that scores uh, 70 points, who wins? And they're always quick to say seven or 80 wins. And it's like, well, but actually, no, if you're playing golf, right, it's not 70 or it's not 80, it's 70. Uh, It depends on the rules of the game. And so the question is, uh, what are the rules? I'm like losing my book here. I don't know what's going on over here. There we go. What are the rules? And then how do you know whether you're getting better, right? So in golf, if your score is going up, you're getting worse. In basketball or bowling, if your score is going up, you're getting better uh, and you want your score to go up. And so the question is, the moment someone starts to saying we are getting better, we are progressing, I think that should lead to some sort of question. It's like, hey, I notice you think that we're getting better. What in what sort of way or what is your standard? And this is the question when it comes to the moral argument. It's not that you can't be good without God. It's that there would be no goodness without God at all. It's that we don't have an objective standard by which we can judge right and wrong. Now, I'm going to get to what he thinks is a standard at the end. But I think here I just want to point out this idea to say that we're progressing. We're getting better. Like you said, mom, dad, I did better on my math test than last week. What'd you get this week? I got an 85. What'd you get last week? A 95. We go, wait, what? You got a 95 last week and 85 this week and you get better? I thought the perfect standard is 100 and therefore better is closer to that perfect standard. And so notice this kind of moral language of we are progressing, we are getting better. Now, again, we're going to come back and address his standard at the end. So he says, uh, here's how things change. Look at the Bible. Consider example, he says, uh, quote, consider, for example, the issue of slavery. Although there are some people who still believe that slavery is moral, the vast majority of uh, modern Christians are unlikely to admit support for the ownership of another person. Nevertheless, the Bible has many references to slavery, carefully detailing rules and proper slave ownership. Now, let me just say this, and maybe this sounds like a cop-out. I think the issue of slavery is probably the hardest biblical issue to deal with. Um, Because I think... You wish, I wish that God just said like very clearly, like never, ever, ever for no reason own slaves and just make it super clear. And that's not really there. Now there's an aspect here. So I'm actually going to jump to one passage that uh, he talks about later and then come back to the main one. But he addresses, you know, it talks about how to treat slaves and not to not treat slaves. So let me pull up my Bible here. Uh, Here's what he says. He addresses uh, verses 20 and 21, where he says, a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies under his abuse. The owner must be punished. However, the slave can stand up after a day or two. The owner should not be punished because he is his owner's property. Now, in relationship to this comment, um, he says this, your male or female slaves are to come. uh, Okay. Exodus 
21, 20 to 21, helpfully clarifies the slave owner will be punished if he strikes a slave, but not only, but only if the slave dies within a few days of the punishment. They are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. Then he says, slavery isn't the only questionable practice in the Bible that the Bible condones. And then kind of goes over. So he uses this example. Now, later on, he's going to talk about how, uh, and I find this interesting. And this chapter kind of jumps all over the place. So sorry if it feels like I'm jumping all over the place. But he talks about later how Christians will often say, well, that's not reading in proper context. And he goes, but Christians, you don't say that when someone says, well, the Bible says love people. And you never say, well, that's not reading in proper context. And that's often true. That, that when the Bible, someone claims the Bible says this good thing, we're not like, oh, let's understand the context. But when it says something bad, we're like, oh, let's understand the context. And it's often because we don't want the Bible to say anything bad. And so we want to... Uh, see if there's a way in which we can maybe explain it away or in which we can understand it better. At the same time, I would say, no, I often, and a lot of people that really want to take reading scripture seriously do want to look at the context for the things that are good as well as the things that are bad. And I've addressed that, for example, at Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And I often will tell my students when I taught on this, look at the context. Yes, this is something good, but look at the context because Jeremiah 44, 11, it says, here are the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to harm you, plans to bring like my destruction upon you or something of that nature. And the issue is, what is the context in which it's talked about here? Same thing with Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we're like, yay, woo, great verse. And it's like, but look at the context. Paul is talking about being content in every situation. He says, I know what it's like to have plenty and I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to be healthy and I know what it's like to be sick. But in any and every situation, I've learned the, the secret to being content for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so there are individuals who are saying, look, we need to understand the context, whether it's good or bad. Same thing with like Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And it's like, well, hold on. What's the context here? All right. So I don't want to get into all those verses, but it is just a broadly universal principle. Don't Christians don't only say context when it looks bad to figure out a way to reconcile it and never look at context when it seems good, but we need to have an accurate understanding of scripture and how that scripture is being used. And so context always matters. My professor of uh, hermeneutics, uh, Ben Shin, uh, would always go to make a stand up and go context, 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 because <laughs> we just need to take it into account and take it seriously. So with that, notice this in the chapter uh, that he addresses here on Exodus 21. Let me pull my Bible back up here for you. Let's see here. <clears throat> All right. So yes, it's saying if you strike a slave and he dies, then you should be punished. Uh, and if you he doesn't die, then you should not be punished. Now, notice one thing here from the beginning. This is like crazy. Think about like the you know slavery in America in the 1800s, right? There was no punishment if a man like killed like the slaves were not even considered human did not have value. And so you could literally probably do anything. And I highly doubt there was any slave owners in the South getting punished for beating or killing their slaves. And so here we have this understanding of slaves in scripture having value, that if you do serious harm to them, you should be punished. Look down just one paragraph. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he must let the slave go free for compensation of that eye. If he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free for compensation of the tooth. 
This actually is giving slaves rights. This is giving slaves dignity. If your person who owns you does any sort of damage, permanent damage to you, damaging your eye, damaging your tooth, or I'm assuming here kind of coming back, you know, hurting you in a way um, that actually does long lasting damage or permanent damage, then you have to give them their freedom. This was not being practiced in the South. Now, if you they don't have permanent damage and they, you know, you've punished them and they recover, then it's fine. Now, again, I think there's ways in which you can look at this and it's like, is it possible to take a, a generous reading of this? And maybe this is too generous. That um that if you are punishing your child and you strike them in a way in which they die, then yes, you should be punished. But if you strike your child, um, and you know, this I, I think in a sense it would still be considered too much. Right. So there is some changing here. But hey, after a little bit, yeah, their butt is sore because you gave them a big, big spanking. And then after a day, then their butt's no longer sore and they're fine. You know, maybe there's people that say, well, that's probably not that big a deal. Maybe you shouldn't make their butt sore. But hey, um, you didn't do permanent damage. Now, there's a lot that can be debated here on what does it look like to actually punish children. But I think what you could say in a generous way is, are you leaving permanent damage on these individuals? But look back again. I'm just scrolling back from here's the verse that he uses 20 to 21. Look back just a little bit. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in possession of him. In the same chapter in which he's saying, look, it's just saying how to treat slaves. It also says if you kidnap someone and sell them, so slave traders, or if you are in possession of a kidnapped person, slave owners, then you should be put to death. Exodus 21, 16, just four verses prior to the verse that he quotes in his chapter, gives the death penalty for owning or selling slaves as we understand it. Now, this is going to get more difficult here in a moment, so stick with me. But the question here is, look, if Exodus 21 is being used to say, no, it doesn't say don't own slaves. Well, it clearly does right there. That if you own or sell a slave, you should be put to death. Then it probably then makes us ask the question, if this is how we understand like the, the you know, the Chattel slavery in the, in, the, in the South in America, this is what was happening. People kidnapping others from Africa, shipping them over and selling them. All those people should have received the death penalty. Um, so then what does it mean to own slaves here? In this chapter, at least this chapter, if this chapter is punishing what we understand slavery to be with the death penalty, we'll go back to the beginning. Laws about slaves. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he serves you for six years, and in the seventh year, leave the slave as a free man without paying anything. This is not slavery as we understand it, where you're kidnapping people and forcing them to work for you for free. This is you buying someone and how this is often explained is that you're buying someone who owes a debt. So there weren't banks where you could go just get a loan and you go buy your house and you pay off your loan to the bank based on the money you earn. If you owed me a debt or I owed you a debt, I would become your slave and I would work for you to work off that debt. Now, let's say you don't need me to work for you, but Bob, your friend does. You could sell my debt, sell me to Bob. Bob buys me and I then work for Bob until my debt is paid off. And the maximum that you are working off that debt is six years, because on the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, everyone goes free without paying anything. And so here, rather than getting locked into like 30-year home mortgages or these long-term debts, any debt um, that you're going to accrue 
had a maximum of a six year payment and you could, you should have been able to work that off in six years. You're debt free. You go free. And so this is understood as most people talk about it as more indentured servitude, not slavery as we understand it in the American South. This is a very, very different thing. And when you look at the beginning of this chapter and see, this is a six year working off a debt, not a stealing and buying anyone. Then this starts to make sense of these other passages of selling your daughter. And it's like, what? And it's like, no, your daughter's working to pay off a debt because then notice if he chooses for her, um, then to, to get married, as we see right here, then he must, the person who owned her previously that she was working for has to treat her as a daughter. You can't treat her as a slave or a hired hand. You have to do everything as you would as your son is normally picking a daughter to, to be with. And then slaves are protected. Now, the difficulty here is this. This is, as it says here at the beginning, when you buy a Hebrew slave. So this is Hebrews owning Hebrews. There is this extra level of protection. So this is where then our men of Abi addresses Leviticus, Leviticus 44 or Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. And I have it up here on the screen. It says this, your male and female slaves are to be from the nations around you. You may purchase male and female slaves. So now we're talking about owning individuals from other nations. You may also purchase from them aliens residing with you, from their families living among you, these born in your land. These may become your property. You may leave them to your sons after you inherit this property. You may make them slave for life. But concerning your brother, the Israelites, you must not rule over one another harshly. So it does seem to be this kind of difference between now what you do with people of other nations and what you do with your own. And here again, it would have been nice if God had said, no, nothing be done. And so we have to try to understand, and this is where what we talked about last week, when you have these prior commitments and beliefs, it's going to cause you to interpret things differently. And so someone, you know, we talked about this last week with miracles, that if you believe that God does exist, then all of a sudden a miracle becomes possible. And then you're going to look at situations differently. But as I discussed with Armin Navabi, if you're an atheist and there is no God, then miracles are impossible. And then it doesn't matter what sort of crazy evidence I present, you're going to look at it and go, there's probably a natural explanation. We just don't understand that disease. Right. And, 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 a, and a completely different understanding. Well, the same is happening here. We're based on my belief about who God is, that God is good. That's going to cause me to look at this and come to a conclusion that an atheist is probably going to go, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. In the same way, an atheist looks at me when I come to a conclusion that a certain event is a miracle and go, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. Because we're starting from two very different points. But I think that there's a few different thoughts that I want to offer you here on Leviticus 25 and the ownership of slaves and why scripture isn't maybe more clear uh, than it could be. The first is this. Um, this is super, super, super common in the ancient Near East and almost every single culture around. Now, again, God made a lot of rules to say, like, don't be like those people. Don't do this. And he could have done that with slavery. It seems like here God instead made accommodations. And we see that, though, with other things that God clearly says is wrong. So, for example, we read in Matthew chapter 19, when the people are asking about divorce, Jesus kind of talks about like, yeah, Moses allowed you to divorce, but that was never a good thing. It was because of the hardness of your heart. And so we recognize there are actions that people did and they had turned from God and God in one sense allowed for it. But it was never something that God considered good. God accommodated divorce 
in the Old Testament and it gave him a permission to do it, even though he never considered it a good thing. And I think you can make the same argument here with slavery, that there's an accommodation based on the practices of other cultures and what was happening, um, that uh, he allowed it, but not making it a good thing. Um, we also can look at this understanding of partially there's there's this uh, gradual, right? There's, there's a partial, okay, let me put it this way. Let me take a step back. There are some people that argue for pro-life policies in America today based on a similar thing, that it's not an all or nothing. So some will take this kind of gradual approach to pro-life issues. So if you're going to say, look, I want my state of California to ban, ban abortions completely, 100% illegal. And then California says, look, we're not going to do that, uh, but we'll get rid of every abortion except for in the case of you know rape and incest. Uh, are you okay with that? If I say yes, you're not going to hopefully look at me and go, how dare you? Are you not really pro-life? Because what's the other option? If I say, no, I don't accept those terms, well, then it just keeps happening freely and promoted. There's an understanding of this is what's going on. If we can at least have this gradual approach towards what I think is a good standard, that's better. So, hey, no abortions except for rape and incest. That's great. We're working in the right direction. But if we take this all or nothing approach, we often really miss out on uh, or the opportunity to do something good, if that makes sense. Then now it's either abortions completely happening or 100% illegal. Well, then they're going to keep happening. But if we can at least make some illegal and some illegal, then we're working in the right direction. It's not perfect, but it's the right direction. And I think that as we take this approach in our culture, I think that there's a way in which you can argue for this approach in, in scripture as well, that, that this is a radically uh, invasive practice happening everywhere. And yes, God could have said never, and there probably would have been this rebellion, and maybe that would have been nice to have that. Or it's this gradual, okay, you're doing it, but here are some standards. Here are some practices. And there's starts to put limits on it. And we then the last thing is this. So not only is it maybe an accommodation, God never calls it a good thing. He allows for it, but he never calls it good. Number two, maybe it's a gradual process, not just an all or nothing abolition. But three, we also have to recognize the overarching, te overarching teaching of scripture that all people are created as valuable image bearers. And it was this exact teaching that led people like William Wilberforce and others to lead the abolitionist slave trade. And so here's a, a kind of a final thought on this comment on slavery is this. It's easy for an atheist to look at scripture and see these passages and go, why wasn't God clear? That's true. But look at it from the other side of the coin. Has there ever been an atheist culture, a secular culture that has abolished slavery? When we look at around the world, it was Christians who believe that all people are creating the image of God that led abolitionist movements. Do we see atheists fighting in this way in, in other cultures or do we see other cultures owning slaves and seeing it as a normal thing as, hey, I, I'm stronger, I'm bigger, I'm more powerful, I'm whatever than you. And so you may want Christian morality or, or, or teachings to be clearer. It's <laughs> a lot of things I wish were a lot clearer in, in scripture. We debate all about a lot of theological issues. But the issue is this, is there enough that Christians have then stood on that have then led abolitionist movements to end the slave trade? And can we say the same thing for a secular morality? I think that is something to consider and something to debate.
Uh, our man goes on to say, slavery is not the only questionable practice uh, condoned in the Bible. The death penalty was also wielded quite liberally in biblical times. And death was a popular punishment for sins in the Old Testament. True. Um, God was trying to help people see that things mattered. Things were a big deal. Uh, we see in the New Testament, too. It's not just the Old Testament. Ananias and Sapphira die. Death penalty for telling a lie. But we see the death penalty, as he mentions here, uh, for adultery, homosexuality, lying about your virginity, breaking the Sabbath, cursing your parents. Also death penalty, he didn't mention, for owning or selling a stolen, kidnapped person. God takes sin seriously. And I think we often don't understand the death penalty because we don't think that these are sinful, bad things. If we talk about, oh, here's this person that murdered so many people or that's done these horrible things, we often will say, man, they deserve the death penalty, even if we're against it and don't want it to really happen. It's like, that's really kind of what they deserve based on what they've done. Here, God is saying, look, these things are just as bad. These things are also horribly wicked. And so I think there's an idea here that we often don't see sin as bad as God does. And therefore we don't understand the punishment that God gives for that sin. In fact, I think some of these on the list here, um, people don't in our culture today don't think those are wrong at all. And so they clearly don't understand why scripture would give the death penalty for these things. Um, then he goes into the context part, and, and I talked about that. Um, <clears throat> so he says here, and he finishes this section, if morality truly stemmed from all-powerful deity, deity, it would not change over time. I would argue that it hasn't changed. And here's the issue, is that in a secular view, and we're going to get this also to the last part. I got to move on. I've been taking way too long. Um but in the last part is if morality does come from a <clears throat> purely naturalistic method, which he talks about at the end, then it has changed. And then the question then becomes, how can you say what happened before was actually wrong? It's because morality itself has not changed. What people practiced has, but morality itself has not changed. That we can look at slave owning cultures in the past and not just say they were different, but that they were actually wrong. And we can actually judge, not because we're better, not because we have this chronological snobbery, that's the word I forgot the other week, that our timeline is the best and everyone before us was bad. No, it's because it's actually wrong. And if there's a culture in the future that starts owning slaves again, we can actually say, no, that will be wrong as well. It's because owning slaves has always been wrong that we can condemn the Israelites when they own slaves unfairly or when other cultures around the world uh, own slaves. Now we're going to get to his point here in a little bit. So uh, let me take a pause here. Um, I've always thought it was different definitions. Of, yeah, Phantom X. We're actually going to get to that here in a little bit. Christians define good as the following uh, of God's will, uh, not whether or not you act morally. I'm going to get to definitions here in a little bit. So again, if you have any other comments or questions, uh, put them in the live chat, uh, whether on Instagram or YouTube, and I will do my best to get to those. Uh, you can also join live on YouTube and have a conversation. The Euthyphro Dilemma. Let me just say this. Uh, he presents the Euthyphro, Euthyphro Dilemma uh, and, and says, um, this is a question that's at the core of Plato's Euthyphro Dilemma, a problem that lies at the heart of religious debate about the uh, divinity of moral authority. If, and it says, he lays it out here. If morality exists separate from God's will, there is no reason to rely on God for moral behavior. If, though, God creates morality simply by saying whether something is right or wrong, then there's not really morality. It's arbitrariness. Morality would become nothing more than the whimsy, than the whimsy of a divine being blindly followed by humans. Here's what frustrated me here. He presents the Euthyphro and then just leaves it. He says, here's the Euthyphro dilemma. Either God is following some moral standard outside of him and therefore he's 
not needed, or God is just making up the moral standard himself. Whatever he says becomes moral and therefore it just becomes arbitrary. It's just whatever he commands. And then he just moves on to the next topic. It's a little frustrating that he didn't present any sort of Christian response of how Christians respond to this and then deal with that deeper issue of euthyphro. Euthyphro is very commonly dismissed in the sense of saying, well, no, those aren't the only two options. This is a false dichotomy. It's not either God is following a moral standard outside of himself or that he can just make up whatever he wants. No, but God, the answer is God is the moral standard. God is good. And therefore his commands flow from his perfectly good nature. I would just say, I would have loved to see him present that Christian response and then actually give a response back to that. Of a, Now, here's how Christians would answer Euthyphro, and here's why I don't think that works. Unfortunately, he just kind of throws out Euthyphro and leaves it there, almost as if, and he, I don't think he's necessarily implying this, but almost as if there's no response. Um, Christians have been responding to the Euthyphro dilemma for a very, very long time. And I have some other videos on that as well. If you want that, I'll find them. I don't remember where, and I'll post them. The next section he talks about is God is either impotent, evil, or non-existent. He says, um, <clears throat> uh, terrible things happen every day. Children die tragically young. Natural disasters wipe out whole communities. People die from accidents and diseases. These do not suggest a righteous and compassionate God. These suggest a God who's either powerless, cruel, or non-existent. Now, let me, again, I'm, I'm pointing to some other resources. I have a whole videos on why God allows evil that hopefully kind of walks through how to respond to these sort of challenges. The question is this, in a secular view of morality is changing, why are these things actually bad? And we're going to get to his reason why in a moment. Um, but to say that because a child dies too young, that God is either powerless, cruel, or non-existent, he's actually here presenting what is called the logical problem of evil. And many atheists have rejected this argument as being not a good argument because there are certain theodicies or, or ways in which we can explain why God would allow evil that at least can say, okay, it's not logically impossible or doesn't logically follow that God is powerless because there's evil. And they now kind of present what is called the, the probability argument, but it's likely that God doesn't exist because of evil, but not that it follows logically. Um, because when people die young, um, it's often the result of some bad decision of someone. Uh, or we recognize it's a result of living in a world where natural laws have to function in a natural way, where the water that feeds us allows for people to drown. Um, the gravity that keeps us to the ground causes people to fall. And so there's these natural results that happen in natural ways, and I think are there for maybe some good reasons to teach us valuable lessons. I'm going into this a lot of detail. If you want to talk about it more in a little bit, um, we can. You can put it in the comments. Um, but there's no reason to believe that it it proves logically that God is either powerless, cruel, or non-existent. Let me just give you it. powerless. Uh, is allowing pain to happen to a child mean that God is powerless? Well, I am a hopefully a good father, and I allow pain to happen to my kid. Does that mean I'm powerless? No because I recognize that some pain is actually good for him when he gets a vaccine or something like that. Controversial, I get it, but if, you know, work with me, if he gets a vaccine, I'm letting the doctor stick needles in my kid's legs um, and I'm allowing that pain and suffering in his life, but it's for a good reason. He just doesn't understand. There's a lot of stuff 
like that, where there's difficulties in our life and we recognize that difficulties make us better. When you go through a difficult time and you come out the other side, when you have a difficult project that you work on, you come out of that, there's that sense of satisfaction. There's what you learn through that. When everything is just handed to you and you just get everything easy, we don't learn valuable lessons. So I think there's forming things that can help us. Not all pain is evil. Pain teaches us when something is wrong. There's all this kind of that works together to help us realize that just because there's a natural disaster doesn't mean God doesn't exist. Let me just address that one here really quickly. He says, natural disasters wipe out communities. All right, here's a very logical way to think about this. This is not like if you know someone who's lost their community because of some natural disaster, not a good response. Here's a logical way. We know, for example, I live in California, there are forest fires every year. You know that if you build a house in the forest, there's a very high chance that that house could burn down by fire because every single year we have fires. In fact, you have to get fire insurance because the insurance companies know there's likely to be a fire. So you say, I don't really care. I want my house in the forest. I build my house in the forest. And then a forest fire comes through and burns down a whole community of homes. And we go, God, how dare you? Same thing with Florida and hurricanes. We want to be on the beach. We know that hurricanes hit the beach every year, but yet we're willing to take that chance. We build there and then a natural disaster wipes out a whole community. Why do we blame God for that? We know this natural disaster happens all the time in this spot. We choose anyways to build on that spot. And then we get mad at God when a natural disaster that we know happens with frequency comes through and wipes out those homes. We should be sad by the loss of life, but how does that lead to therefore God is non-existent? God has given us wisdom on how to build and how to take care of and how to construct proper barriers and, and whatever. There's wisdom involved that we can actually overcome this. And there's an interesting study in one of the books that I used to teach where it talked about a, there's a, um, an earthquake that was a, uh, the, 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 the one we know about in Haiti. And then there's another one in Japan. The one in Japan was way stronger than the one in Haiti, but the one in Haiti killed way more people. And when people started studying, why is this the case? They realized because Japan knew earthquakes happen. And so if they're going to build tall buildings, they need to really engineer these buildings to withstand the earthquakes. And so even when this really strong earthquake hit Japan, most of the buildings withstood it because of their engineering, they used wisdom and innovated and not very many people died. Versus in Haiti, you have a poorer country. There's a lot of corruption. There's not building standards and building codes and all this sort of stuff. People are building on top of each other. A lot of different issues going on there. So now when a lesser earthquake hits, it causes greater destruction. Um, the issue here is how corruption and human choices and human freedom and, and all this sort of stuff, I think, can play into causing natural disasters to be a lot bigger of an impact than we often want to believe. He then jumps into, um, man, my ears, something's bothering me. Let me keep this out. Worse still is the concept of hell, where non-believers suffer in eternal torment simply for disbelieving in God. Now, here's where I want to stop and ask everybody, Christians, non-Christians, whoever's watching. Is this the Christian view of hell? He says, non-believers suffer in hell suffer eternal torment simply for disbelieving in God. Is this the reason people go to hell? You can comment, you can do whatever you want to do, because here's what I want to see is, is do, is this a, a wide, a widely accepted belief? Because here's the issue. The answer is no. <laughs> this is a straw man. 
This is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of hell that then leads him to believe that hell is this horrible place, that you go there just because you don't believe. He says this somewhere else here in a little bit. Um, Here it is. Uh, He says, quote, an all loving God would surely not damn his children to an entire to an eternity of torture simply for being born into a culture that believes in the wrong deity follows the wrong holy book or attends the wrong type of church services let me just say this if that's why god is sending people to hell then i would agree with our man navabi if people are going to hell and being tormented for all of eternity just because they went to a wrong church service or were born in a wrong family, then that would not be fair. And I would agree. The issue here is this is a complete misunderstanding of the nature of hell. Our Phantom X, said, I don't think there is a single view that Christians have on hell, but uh, believe the common answer is that it's because of original sin, the lack of redemption from it. Yeah. Christians will disagree on the nature of hell. Christians will disagree whether hell's eternal or if there's annihilationism or there's conditional immortality. There's all sorts of different Christian views. But I think that is a virtually as much as a universal belief among Christians as we can get is that we go, we are separated from God because of our sin, that we have done wrong. This is what Romans or Revelation 20 talks about. Those who are names are not written in the book of life will be judged according to the deeds that they have done. Let me pull this up here for, for you really quick. Um, Revelation 20. Um, the great white throne of judgment. Here it is. Then I saw a great white throne, the one seated on it, earth and heaven fled from its presence and no place was found in, uh, for them. I saw the dead and the great small standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to the works that they had done written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and the dead uh, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not writ- found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire scripture is clear over and over and over again and christians may explain this poorly but a proper doctrine of hell is that you are judged according to the things that you have done you have sinned you have done wrong and therefore you deserve punishment so i would ask our men and anyone watching what do you think should happen to someone who has done wrong if there is a good judge and there is someone who has committed a crime, done wrong, standing in front of that judge. What should the judge do? Should the judge say, be free, I love you, and just let him go? Or should the judge punish those who have done wrong? And I think most people are going to say, well, the judge should punish him. If it's a good judge, the judge should punish someone who's done wrong. Exactly. That's what God is doing here. Now, then this gets into a whole other conversation on what about Christians? It's like, well, God has punished Jesus. Jesus has taken the punishment for us. He's that substitutionary atonement for us. And so there still is punishment happening. It's just not me that has to be punished, but it is, um, but it's Jesus that takes my punishment for him, for me. And so that's the question that everyone is left with. You have done wrong. You deserve to be punished. Do you want to be punished yourself or do you want Jesus to take the punishment for you? Either he can take it for you and therefore you will go free, or you can take it yourself. Do you want Jesus or not? And so the issue here is not, as he says, you suffer eternal torment simply for disbelieving in God. The issue is you suffer eternal torment, or you deserve eternal 
torment, eternal punishment, because you have done wrong. And if you believe in God, you can be saved from it, right? It's, it's like, I don't die. I like this example. I don't, I don't, um, uh, I, if I have cancer, I don't die because I didn't go to a doctor. It's not the doctor that killed me. What killed me was the cancer. The doctor could have saved me if I went to a doctor, if I went to the right doctor. Here, here's an example that goes on his next one about going to the right church service. If I go to the right doctor, that doctor has the ability to heal my cancer and therefore then I don't die. If I go to a wrong doctor who can't heal my cancer, I am going to die. And I didn't die just because I went to the wrong doctor. I died because I have cancer. I have a disease that is killing me. And it's only the right doctor who has the ability or the power to cure of that cancer. And so what the Christian view is, is that Jesus is that right doctor. Jesus is the only one who has the ability to forgive us and to cure us from our disease called sin. And therefore, we do have to go to him. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is Jesus's words, not mine. Jesus taught that it's only through him that we get the freedom from our sin because he takes that punishment for us. Going to any other person is not going to free us because they don't have the ability to free us from our sins. And so here, the, the issue is, and I think in, in a simple sense, you could say this, it's like, I think no matter if you're Calvinist, Arminian, or whatever, I think this is true, that, that God will ultimately send you where you want to go. We all have a question before us where God is saying, do you want me? And those who say, yes, God, I want to be with you. He will let them be with him. And those who say, no, God, I don't want you. I don't believe in you. I don't need you. I don't whatever. Then he will give that person a life without him. And that is hell. We either have life with God or life without God. And it's ultimately up to us and what we desire. Do you want to be with him or not? And even as like, I think atheist uh, Christopher Hitchens was said, like heaven would be hell for him. It's like, if you don't want God and God says, well, I don't care what you want. I'm forcing you into heaven. That would make him evil. The same way if you're like, I want to be with you, God. And he's like, no, I don't like you and sends you to hell. That's also evil. But God is loving and he is just. And those who want to be with him will get to be with him. And those who don't, won't. And it's based then on the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I think here on this idea of him claiming that the doctrine of hell is this horribly damning thing in his words of an all-loving God surely would not do this. Um, I think it's because he misunderstands the doctrine of hell. Um, let me jump over here to the comment section here really quickly because um, I think I've seen a lot coming in. Um Okay, to seal man, I like that, Phantom X. To seal man, Armin, uh, if you don't believe that God exists, you are incapable of accepting the offended, uh, offered redemption. That's true. But again, the question is, you're not going to hell just because you don't believe in him, right? And that's where there is a difference is, is you have this disease called sin. And I get that not believing in God, you're then not gonna go to him for help. But it's not just because you don't believe in him. But it's that you have this disease and you have to recognize that he is the one that can save that. And so there is, and this is why worldviews matter. This is why our beliefs matter. Our beliefs have consequences. And so if you are rejecting the one who has the ability to save you, then you're not going to get saved. It's not just because you rejected him, but because um, you're, you're, on that path of dying, right? It's the same thing of if there's a, a flood washing through and you're stranded on the top of a house and this tsunami's coming in, it's gonna wipe you out. And a helicopter comes over and says, I'm gonna here to rescue. And I, I get this is a bad analogy. Um, it's like, I'm here to rescue you. You're like, oh no, I don't believe in helicopters. This makes it sound like I'm 
really mocking our men, sorry. Um, but it's like, if you don't believe and you reject the one who's there to rescue you, you are gonna die and that thing is coming. And that's what the Christian is trying to warn about. And again, I think, it, you know, even the atheist uh, pen, the, the magician in, 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 in um, Las Vegas talked about, you know, Christians, if you believe that you have the, the answer and you're not telling people, like how much do you have to hate them not to give them the cure to their problem? And that's the claim that's trying to be made is that there is this issue we have. There's only one savior. There's only one redeemer. And clearly, yes, if you reject um, belief in that redeemer, then you're not going to go to him to be saved, but then you're not going to be saved. That is true. But it's, again, not just because you don't believe in him. Uh, it's not like he's like, ah, you don't believe me. You're out. It's no, we've done wrong. And that's what we're getting punished for. Um, and so, yeah, then, oh man, Phantom X, that's such a good point. Atheists are then being punished because they're incapable of even taking the first step. This is where you get into a lot of different Christian views on what people are capable or incapable of. And I just will say this, look, I, I don't think God will save everyone who desires to be saved. For everyone who whose heart is open, who says, God, I want you, God will save that person. And that there are going to be then people who have this, this closed off sense in which they are going to reject him. And therefore, they're not going to be saved. But I don't think there's anyone, let me put it this way, there's no one that would have been saved that God is not then saving. Uh, there's no anyone who says, well, I just can't because of some restriction. And I would have if I had the ability, but I just can't. It's not this external, this is, I guess what I'm trying to say, this not, is not this external bondage that is keeping us from doing it. There's not this internal desire, I really want God, but then something is like holding me back and I just can't get him and I'm incapable of him. Is that those who are not reaching out for God, it's their own desires, it's their own brokenness, it's their own choices. And again, there's people like you, and I don't know you, Phantom X, uh, you're here every week and I appreciate that. There's people that are engaging in these sort of conversations, trying to figure it out. I have a whole show on, on, um, on um, non-resistant non-believers where I think, look, I think there are people who are non-resistant non-believers, but they're not going to be that way till death. That there are times where people become non-resistant that they're open to the idea of God and those who are then open, God will reach down and save because then their openness will lead them to him. And so I do think it is ultimately a choice that we make where we're choosing to go into life without him or choosing a life with him. And there's not this external thing keeping us from being able to act out of our desires. Even a Calvinist, in a sense, I can agree with this. Say, no, we have our sinful desires that are leading us astray because of our sinful nature. And when God redeems that nature, then we are now wanting to choose him. But until that redemption takes place, we're not wanting God. And even scripture talks about this. No one wants him. No one is seeking after him. It's only when the Holy Spirit draws people. I don't remember what verse that is off the top of my head, but it's only the drawing of the Holy Spirit that then causes someone, but we're not out there seeking God on our own. So it really is, I think, this heart attitude where the moment our heart is opened to where we begin seeking after God, scripture says that those you know who seek will find. So I don't think it's this unfair incapability that people have, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm explaining that well. Um, all right. The last section here is his natural explanation for morality. And I'll try to, oh my goodness, 50 minutes. I was planning for these videos to be like 25, 30 minutes and then a lot of time for Q&A. Um, but they've been long. Um, but again, hopefully you guys are enjoying it. 
Natural explanation for minerality. Uh, I'm going to kind of jump through this, a few highlights that I have. Uh, he says, our brains have evolved with behavioral strategies that help the survival of our genes. Here's what's huge. And Phantom X, this goes back to your first comment of, I think there's a different definition of good. I think there is. Notice how he switches here, or at least what now he's defining with something as good. Our brains evolve with behavioral strategies that help the survival of our genes. Good becomes a strategic move, not a moral choice, that is based on our survival, not based on some sort of standard of morality. This is like, uh, for example, there's a debate, uh, I think it's on YouTube, or a conversation more so, uh, between Michael Shermer, who's this author, editor of Skeptic Magazine, Atheist, and Sean McDowell, Christian apologist. And they're sitting at this table and, and Shermer starts to kind of talk in the same way. And, and Sean talks, kind of stops and says, you know, look how we're using these words differently. It's like playing a game of chess. I think there was a chess board on the table they were sitting at. There are good strategic moves and there are bad strategic moves. But I'm not going to get locked up in jail or you're not going to condemn me as a bad person because I make a bad strategic move in chess. Or I'm not a good person because I made a good strategic move. We're talking about good strategy-wise is helping us simply just achieve a goal of me capturing your king. That's very different than a good or bad, morally speaking, where now I'm getting punished. And so if in a natural explanation of morality, all he's doing is saying because of this, in a sense, arbitrary end goal we have, survival of our genes, or like in chess, this arbitrary end goal, capture the king, right? Chess could have been invented where it was capture the queen. It could have been invented where the fastest person to lose their king wins the game. Just like golf is the lowest score and basketball is the highest score, right? Rules, uh, when you're playing Monopoly, when you pass go, do you get $200? Do you get $500 or $2,000? When you're playing with your friends, you can make your own house rules. If you want to pay play that you get $2,000 every time you pass go, well, then you can do that. If you want to make it to where you lose money every time you pass go, you can do that. And then a good move or a bad move is based on how well you're following that agreed upon strategy, right? There's nothing objective here. And there's also nothing moral here. This is good and bad in a strategic sense, not good and bad in a moral sense. And so he's presenting a natural explanation of saying, here's how we understand what a good strategy is. He says, again, our brains have evolved with a behavioral strategy that helps the survival of our genes. Again, I don't... Maybe I'm just keep saying this and you guys have already understood it and I'm just repeating myself at this point. But I don't think anyone who in playing a game of basketball, when you make a bunch of three pointers and you have a good strategy that helps you win the game, you go, wow, what a good moral choice you made. We recognize that's not moral. <laughs> when you move a chess piece in a certain way, no one goes, oh, what a good moral decision. We all know that there's a difference between morally good loving, kind, compassionate, morally bad, evil, wicked, murderer, than a bad strategy and a good strategy. We recognize this difference. And so what Armin Avabi here is presenting, not a natural explanation for morality, but a natural explanation for a behavioral strategy that helps his chosen goal, survival of our genes, as being, here's what helps my goal. The question here is this, is number one, is that actually morality? I don't think so. Number two, what makes survival of our genes a good thing? Why is that good? That's what he's picked, but what happens when someone else comes along and says, actually, my end goal is for our genes to get eliminated? Or why just our genes? That's speciest. If it's just human genes, why not all genes? Why not all animals? And this just becomes this arbitrary thing where there is no objective 
thing. It just becomes what is a social contract. He talks about that here in a little bit. He then kind of goes on. He says, uh, we're social animals. Behavior, we behave in certain ways towards others because their brains have evolved to help us ensure not only their own survival, but their survival of the genetic kin. Uh, he goes on and says, ultimately, moral standards, as we understand them, are social constructs. They are tied intimately to cultural circumstances and can change over time. So my question would be this. If, if moral standards are simply socially constructed ideas, that there's nothing deeper, there's nothing further into it than that, then how can we condemn previous cultures who had different socially constructed ideas and different end goals? How can we say the 1800 slavery was actually wrong? At best, we can say it's different. They had a different idea. And this is when we come back to what he said at the very beginning. And my first point that I tried to drive home is this idea in the use of words. How then can we say that we are progressing as a society? What do you say at the very beginning? Um, let me go back here. Um, oh no, where was that? Oh, over time, views of what is acceptable shifts as cultures progress, which makes many things in the Bible and Quran outdated and highly problematic. How can you have progress and be getting better at something if it is simply just what our society has constructed? Now, you can get kind of within our own socially constructed idea of there's a better move in chess and there's a worse move. And so there's progress where I'm getting better at chess but you can only judge from within your own socially constructed rules, like the rules of chess, and you would never be able to apply that to someone else. If there's a game going on next to you where they have a different set of rules and they're playing by different chess rules, you can never say we're better than you because they have a different set of rules, just like you can't compare one sport to another. Hopefully that makes sense. At the same time, though, we naturally, as he does at the beginning, talk about this idea that we are getting better. Our system we have now is better than what was in the Bible. Better based on what? Based on our own socially constructed ideas? We can't judge in that way. The other issue that gets raised is, as he talks a lot about in this chapter, of it's this evolutionary built-in thing. There's what's called the is-ought problem. And it's simply this. Science can tell you what is or what happens, but it can't give you a moral obligation or an ought. You don't get an ought from an is. Um, as so you say, this is the way something is, but then why should I follow it? You can say it's better or it's good for, or I like surviving. Okay, but why should I help your survival? Why should I not hurt you? Um, in the same way, you can say, well, sticking a knife in someone will make them bleed. But should I stick knives in people? Well, doctors do, and that's okay, but murderers do, and that's not okay. Um, putting poison in someone's drink will kill them. Okay, that's what will happen. Science can be clear about that, but should I put poison in a drink? Right? There's a different question with a should or here's what you ought to do. You ought not murder. You should not murder. Why not? Simply saying that murdering kills someone, yes, that's what does happen, but then why shouldn't I do that? Right? There's a different question of what is ought, what ought I do, what should I do, than what is. And trying to ground uh, uh, morality in evolution or in some sort of scientific explanation can only tell you what is the way things are, what happens. I don't think you can get an ought from that. And so 
to, to kind of conclude, this chapter is titled Morality Stems from God. Without God, you can't be a good person. I, I don't agree with that title. I think atheists can be good people because there's an objective understanding of what good is. And because God is good and God is love, then it is good to love. And so when an atheist loves his wife or his family or his kids, the atheist is doing something good. The question is rather if there is no God and you lose the ultimate standard by which we can judge actions as right or wrong, then how can we say it is actually right, good, not just strategically good, but morally good to love and morally bad to hate? I don't think we have this objective way to judge different cultures if there is no objective standard. The best we have is our cultural relativism, which says, here's what our culture has decided, or what's called I say relativism, here's what I've decided, and that is my moral standard. I don't think you can get anything above that if there is no God, so there's no ultimate understanding of right and wrong. But atheists, because God does exist, an atheist still can be a good person and do good things based on how God has revealed it to be. So. There's the end of the chapter. Let me address uh, Phantom X, your last comment here. Um, and then if there's anything else, post it here or else I'm going to say goodbye here in a moment. Many philosophers, atheists and theists, believe in moral realism. I don't understand their thinking very well, and I'm trying to understand it, but it's interesting that they believe in natural morality that is objective. I would agree with you. Many atheists, uh, many atheists reject moral realism and many accept it. The question then we have to get to is for those atheists who are presenting, here's objective morality without God. The question is, can it be grounded? And I'll just say, personally, I haven't read something that has personally convinced me that this is a solid grounding for morality apart from God. Um, and uh, Michael, I, th Ooh, I don't know if I've read him. Maybe he's been referencing something. Um, I'll check him out. But um, Often it is based on like a Sam Harris, human flourishing or other things that it's, it's grounded on um, that says, here's how we ground uh, objective morality uh, based on what causes humans to flourish. But the question is, well, why is human flourishing good? Right. And that's where God kind of helps us. Well, why is that good? Well, because God is good. Right. It, we're getting back to his nature is the ultimate standard. Um, and therefore, it's not this arbitrary thing that we as a culture just have simply decided. So, um, all right. Well, I think I hear my kids awake and it's been an hour. So I'm going to sign off and say goodbye. But next week, what's our next chapter? Belief in God would not be so widespread if God didn't exist. Um, so, hey, I just heard from one person who went and got the book and they're going to be kind of working through this uh, uh, with me. So that's really fun to hear. Um, but hey, I, I hope this has been good. I'll check out Michael uh, Humor's work uh, as well. And um, I'm looking forward to having another conversation with you guys next week. So until then, some other videos will pop up here on the site on YouTube uh, and you can continue to think deeply about these different issues of Christianity and cultural engagement. Hopefully this has been a blessing to you. If it has, you can share it. You can like it. You can write a review on podcast apps. Uh, that'll help kind of get the word out there. You can help the algorithms or whatever you want to do. Uh, but I appreciate uh, the chance to sit down and have this conversation with you. Glad you liked it, Phantom X. Thank you always for being here. And everyone else who's joined, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. And until next time, continue to think deeply. Oh, wait, no, wait, 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 wait. This summer, July, Maven trip to uh, Utah. I'm going to be leading a trip for all high school and college students only in this month. I don't think the first week of March, there's a scholarship available, full ride scholarship. Uh, more information is in YouTube in the description. You can fill out the form, get a full ride scholarship for our Maven Biblical Immersive Experience to Utah. And so I, I want to see some students uh, heading out there with us, receiving theological training and having conversations with Mormons. It's going to be a lot of fun. So with that, there's my announcement. Have a good rest of your day. Bye, everyone. See you later. I'm just
to take to follow your love.